Hello and welcome back to Black Exposure Podcast, formerly with that said. If you've been here for a while, then you know I originally started my podcast because I was looking for a way to change my situation in corporate America. I was tired of being robbed of my intellectual property, tired of hitting the glass ceiling, and I was really frustrated with the status quo. I hope that by sharing my journey and my success, that I would influence change at a greater scale. And while I do still want to influence change for black professionals, there is a more pressing issue on our hands. And that issue is closing the wealth gap. Because of this, I rebranded my podcast to focus on doing just that. I truly believe that you are either contributing, sharing, engaging, or sitting on the sidelines. If you found yourself sitting on the sidelines, This podcast is an opportunity for you to get up off the bench and join the conversation. On this podcast, I'll give voice to all Black professionals, Black entrepreneurs, Black parents, and Black children. And together, we can share in our journey, our struggles, and our triumphs. Now let's get into the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to With That Said. Today, I have a very exciting guest that I am so thrilled to have on because he actually works in one of the most taboo industries, probably of today's times, and that is the cannabis industry. So before I introduce my guest, who is Mr. Corey Jackson, and I allow him to take the floor to share his story, I just wanted to tell everybody to sit down, grab a seat, maybe even a notepad, because this is going to be a good one. So I'll turn it over to you, Corey. Good morning. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Um, Yeah, I'm Corey Jackson, uh, Senior Director of Operations for one of the leading cannabis companies here in the United States. Um, Been in the industry for two years, um, coming out of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and then jumped around a little bit, but we'll get to that. Okay. So tell us about your background. I know you didn't just wake up one day and decide to work in cannabis. So where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And how did you make that transition into, uh, the cannabis industry? Uh, well, I'm originally from South Jersey, Willingboro, New Jersey. Um, but both my parents were in the army, so I was a military brat. Um, so lived in other countries, traveled a lot as a kid, um, and then eventually settled down in Willingboro and graduated high school there. Um, originally, I actually wanted to be an architect, um, but ended up getting a car scholarship from Rutgers University, um, and they don't have architecture. So went into civil engineering, um, realized after a year I really didn't like it, um, so switched over to industrial engineering, and that's what I stayed with in my career. Um, I've worked in cosmetics, food and beverage, nutraceutical, pharmaceutical. Um, but then, yeah, uh, a colleague of mine at one point contacted me and said, hey, I got an open position with a large amount of growth potential um, in the cannabis industry. Um, and so, you know, after about two months of going back and forth and working on some things, uh, finally just took that leap. Very nice. I have to stop and say, are you Rara? Because I also went to Rutgers. And so for the audience who might not know, I actually met Corey because he is the husband of one of my closest friends. And it's so funny because I remember the day where he told uh, myself and my husband, we were sitting in your backyard and you came over and you were like, yeah, so I'm about to take a job in the marijuana industry. And I remember thinking this guy is completely out of his mind. Um, you know, I was like, I can't believe he's going to leave a stable sector to go do something that, you know, would from the outside looking in would just seem like such a big risk. So my first question is, do you think your upbringing as a military brat played a role in you having that courage to, you know, be nimble and be willing to switch careers? And then my second question is, what was that conversation like with your spouse to say, hey, babe, I'm about to do this? Uh, so the first part, yeah, I think my upbringing, you know, takes away some of the fear of, of switching companies, jumping around, being willing to move, um, just to achieve things that, you know, I did so much of that as a kid that that doesn't really scare me. I'm not looking to stay in the same place forever. 
um, the conversation with my wife was more of a kind of wear her down over two months, if you if you will. It was, you know, hey, my buddy threw this idea at me and, you know, she's like, oh, that's nice and keep going about your day. <laughs> and then over time, it's like, well, you know, he made the money work. He made um, all the benefits work. Uh, you know, it has all this growth opportunity. There's stock options. There's this, there's that. Um, and just by time it all kind of ended, it was like, you know, this actually makes sense. Um, there were opportunities where I might have to, we might have to pack up and move to Florida. Um, it ended up not working out that way. Um, so it was just a wild ride to, to get there. But once it was time to go, it was, you know, full steam ahead. So what is it like? Talk me through your first day at work. You, you, you know, you resigned from, where were you before? Like the, the media company before it was in New Jersey? Yeah, so it was a uh, pharmaceutical company um, in South Jersey, and I was the head of operations there, um, and, and was just doing that. Um, some changes had happened there. Some people had left. Some people got moved around, um, and you know, it was one of those things where you're sitting there looking like, oh, this is a good, stable job, but the way things are shaking out with some of the people movings and some of the changes they were making. I wouldn't be opposed to going somewhere else and just fate would have it. This opportunity kind of fell in my lap right at the same time. Um, but yeah, definitely there was still the risk of uh, leaving a very stable pharmaceutical country uh, company. Obviously that's an industry that's always doing well um, and going into kind of an upstart industry that you really don't know how it's going to shake out. Mm-hmm. So what, what was your first day like you show up to, to the company you, you know, you walk through the doors and what is the first thought that comes through your mind? <laughs> uh, well, the first thing that happened was uh, it switched, they switched what place I would be going to. Um, I was originally going to run the new facility that they were in the process of building in Florida. Um, and right when I kind of signed on the dotted line, the head of the facility in New York um, left the company. And it was one of those, actually, can you hurry up and come up to New York? Um, living in New Jersey, that wasn't a hard one. I just hopped in a car and drove up there. Um, and kind of, they all got turned around from there. I went from thinking I was going to be going back and forth to Florida, thinking I was going to move to now just commuting back and forth to New York, um, every couple of days. Um, the first thing you get used to, you know, walking into any cannabis facility really is the smell of cannabis. It's in the air. You can just smell it. Um, it's obviously a distinct smell. It smells different than maybe how other people know it to smell because they're used to smelling it like when it's burning, when someone's smoking it. But when you're in a greenhouse or grow room with thousands of plants, you know, that, that terpene smell, that sweetness, um, you just smell it. It's in the air. It gets into your clothes. It gets into anything that's in that building is going to smell like it. Um, but the main thing is just getting used to being in rooms full of cannabis plants you know it's you walk in you see the room and you just everyone no matter who i bring in there you just automatically smile <laughs> this is one of those things like oh my god where am i at um and over time you get used to it just it doesn't even become a thing anymore so that's so interesting because i think you you know everybody imagines that when you are working for a marijuana company or a cannabis company you imagine like everybody has to be getting high every day. But I imagine if I'm the outside looking in, it's probably not that way because it's like anything else. You see it so much, you're around it so much. You're like, yeah, no. <laughs> so um, what other type of ways that the product can be produced? Like, you know, we, you know, I, I don't know much about cannabis, but from what I do know from, you know, rap music, you know, you usually only think about it as something that you would be smoking. Are there other ways that you could consume cannabis? And if so, what are they? Um, the opportunities for it are infinite. So obviously you can take the, the raw flour, grind it up, smoke it, um, whether that's, you know, in, in paper like a, like a cigar or in a bowl or a bong, um, what have you. You can smoke it any kind of way that way. Um, then you can extract it down to an oil. Um, it's kind of the thickness of honey, actually. And once it's in oil form, you can put it in anything. So obviously there's vape pens for it. Um, people put it into food, put it into butter, um, put it into lotion, put it into uh, patches. Um, wow. Some of the newest kind of things I've seen are it being used in very traditional medicinal ways. So the same ways people have uh, their nicotine patches. There's a company in Florida 
uh, Mary's Medicinal that puts the THC in a patch the same way, so it gets delivered that way. I've seen it in effervescence like Alka-Seltzer. I've seen it in uh, inhalers as well. Um, that's a, a company, Pharmacan, that does that, that has that technology as well. So, honestly, it has every opportunity. It, it can be into anything, honestly. That is so crazy because I think, you know, I, I know a little bit about um, – the the cannabis industry outside of smoking i was being a little facetious but i do have a client that i work with that actually puts um cbd oil inside of a topical um solution and so it gets applied to the skin and so it's able to not need a um they don't have to register as a marijuana facility because it it doesn't have thc in it i guess and also because it's it's not going and it's not being ingested, it's being applied as a topical. So I guess my question to you is, um, are, are you guys, like, can it be distributed on a wholesale basis? And then the second question, do you think there's a difference in the effects of it, whether or not you're, like, inhaling it versus applying it topically? Do you think that the benefits are the same or are they different? So I guess the first thing would be the difference of THC and CBD. Um, which are both found in cannabis. The, the main difference is CBD is also found in hemp. So hemp and, uh, and cannabis are, you know, like a half brother, half sister. Um, it's just that the cannabis plant also produces THC. So a lot of times when people are getting CBD products, especially if you're getting it like at a random store or a drug store, or, you know, now they're selling it everywhere. It's hemp-based CBD. Unless you're going to a dispensary, um, it's definitely hemp-based CBD. If you're going to a dispensary, it's more than likely uh, cannabis-based CBD. And, there are, and are, there are some differences. Um, and they react differently. So THC and CBD work together um, along with the terpene, which is your smell and taste profile, to create like an entourage effect. They, they balance each other out. They work off each other. Um, and that's why most will tell you that even if you're just trying to use CBD, you should probably get cannabis-based CBD. Um, which they still sell in what's called a zero to one ratio where the amount of THC in it is so low that it won't register like on a drug test or anything. Uh, but the still the interaction of the CBD with the THC and coming from a cannabis plant um, gives you a better overall effect for the CBD aspect, which is more of a health and wellness. Um, but it can be used in tons of varieties. Um, it can help with irritable bowel syndrome. It can help people that have uh, like epileptic seizures. Um, it can help with pain reduction, especially for like terminally ill cancer patients, um, things of that nature. Um, glaucoma, obviously everyone knows that one. So a lot of these different kind of pain and anxiety things, the uh, CBD can definitely help with um, and it helps lower the overall effects of those uh, issues. Um, but THC also can get you high. So it's a play on those two. It's it's about finding the balance to to do to stay, I guess, within the the guidelines. And so that brings me to my next question: Why do you think it's such a heavily regulated field? Because when you think about like sort of what's going on with the opioid crisis, right? Fentanyl, Percocets, um, the, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Vicodin. Yeah, so, um, yeah. yeah. When you think about what's happening in traditional pharmaceuticals with opioids, and and I know they've tried to get a little bit more strict on the way that they dispense opioids, but I mean it's like come almost like a day late and a dollar short, right? Because it's been going on for so long, almost freely. Why do you think that when it comes to marijuana, which you know I did a little bit of research about it, it seems to be that there is not a lot of wide range studies that would suggest that marijuana is going to kill someone, right? Mm -hmm. Even not, the conversation is that marijuana has healing properties. It's beneficial. It's a mental health stability, you know, stabilitator. It it just it's it's a positive, you know, for lack of a better word, drug, right? Why do you mm -hmm. think that there's so much regulation around marijuana versus the regulation around all the other drugs that you know has really harmful effects to the human body? Uh, it's mostly based on its introduction to the United States. Mm. So we're talking the 70s, 80s, um, maybe even before the 60s, like even the term marijuana. It's called marijuana because at the time the government had this big push that it was coming from Mexico, 
thus the Juana part. It was coming from Mexico and, and that it was illegal and Mexicans were bringing it across the border and it was going to ruin our city structures and, you know, everyone was going to become a drug addict and all these different things. Um, that's why they t- went with the term marijuana over its actual name, cannabis. Um, and then once they were ev- able to demonize it, if you will, that made it very easy to build regulation because when you're building laws and Congress is, is passing things through and all that, if all the people think this is this horrible demonized thing, it's easy to just make it a schedule one narcotic, which is what it is. So schedule one narcotics are like heroin, cocaine. Uh, and then you have cannabis there, which makes absolutely no sense. Um, and, and that's the biggest issue of how it federally um, became illegal. Now, cannabis kill, well, first of all, cannabis can't kill you. Um, you could, do all types of different things while high on cannabis or having cannabis in your system. But cannabis itself can't kill you. Now, we know that smoking in general kills you, but it's way more dangerous to smoke cigarettes with all the artificial chemicals and things in that. We know that alcohol can actually kill you and make you drunk to damage or hurt other people. Cannabis can't do that. Um, And it's a lot easier to control. It actually has no addictive property in it. Um, compared to the other parts like nicotine, caffeine, alcohol itself. Um, But the main issue was it was demonized in our culture. Um, And that's why in some other countries, they don't have nearly as close to the laws or regulations or any at all as we do, because they never had that introduction to it in their country. Mm. And you know what's so interesting is that I would have imagined like when, you know, that it was that they couldn't figure out a way to tax it. Or a way to like control it, right? Because I think, or, or, and maybe I'm just throwing something at the wall here. Maybe it's because the marijuana for the most part is a happy drug, right? It makes people euphoric. It makes people friendly. I mean, if you look at, you know, the way people talk about it, you know, it's always like, you know, it's talked about positively. Like you never hear it being like, yeah, so I, you know, like lean or whatever, which was like Mm -hmm. a very serious drug. Um, in the African-American community that is more dangerous, right? And so I always thought that because marijuana is essentially, and I know a lot of people who are not of color smoke marijuana or ingest marijuana, but I think that it's heavily used in the African-American community. So I always thought it had something to do with one, not being able to properly tax it or control it in a way that was going to generate enough money for the government. And then two, I thought, because it's heavily used in African-American community, it's an easy way to criminalize Black men. Um, So it's a little bit of all of that. So some of the reasons now why it's still not federally legal are what you hit on, um, the taxation, um, how to monetize it properly. Um, And and it actually brings up a good point. I know a lot of people go, well, cannabis needs needs to get federally legal, federally legal. But Right now, I don't know if that's the best option or it's going to be a very confusing option. And here's why. Unlike probably anything else in our government or in our country, whenever has there been another thing that's completely federally illegal and then the states legalize it? Mm. Um, So what you're going to have is if it goes federally legal, now there's a fight against the states of what the rules and regulations of it are and how to legalize it in each individual state. So for example, you have states like Washington and Oregon that are completely oversaturated recreational markets that have more flower, more uh, plants than they can even do with. You know, a lot of growers in those two states are killing plants and throwing away uh, cannabis because they just have too much. Well, if it goes fairly legal and you can take it across state lines and all that kind of stuff or wholesale it, What happens to a state like California, which is the biggest cannabis market in the world? Uh, Are they going to want people shipping it in from Washington, Oregon, diluting their, you know, their income of all the homegrown Mm. in California? Uh, um, And and that's the big question of, you know, just because it's fairly legal, to what level? So, like I said, right now it's a Schedule 1 narcotic. Do they just bump it to a Schedule Two narcotic, which basically means that only pharmaceutical industries can use it, um, and then you have, and then it becomes very restrictive. You have to have a prescription for it. It basically becomes like all those opiates. Well, 
we've already seen that the states aren't going to go for that because they've already completely legalized it. So that's not going to work. So really the, the question is, to what level is it going to be legalized? Is it going to be legalized the same as alcohol is, where you can, if you're of age, you can go to a store, get it, consume it. Um, and if you're not, you're not. And then there's, you know, federal organizations that regulate the making of it. You have to get licenses for it and all those different things. That might be an option, but it's really going to be a question now that states are independently making tax money off of this. How does the federal government get their cut? Mm-hmm. And that's what it all boils back down to is how do we get our cut? Um, I know that there's a few, uh, maybe two plants in New Jersey that I can think of. Don't quote me. I know one is this one in Cranberry. So um, I was thinking, you know, it's very expensive. You know, when I did my little my limited research, you know, as prep for this for our, our, our podcast taping, I was like, oh my gosh, just selling this stuff at like $80 at or like, you know, $500 here, you know, and, and you, to your point, every single state has a different pricing for it. Um, I had the opportunity to um, visit Boston. And one of the things I, I did not realize when I got there was that marijuana is recreationally legal in Boston. Yep. which was completely shocking to me to, to, to see people. Essentially, you walk past a car and the, the entire air smells like marijuana. And I'm like, the, the police are real chill about it. Nobody's saying anything. And it was at that point that I realized that there's actually a marijuana dispensary in Boston that is black owned. And the only, you know, yeah. yeah. And it's so crazy because the reason why I found it is because everything that's going on with, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, social injustice reform. I was really uh, interested in seeing which sectors are in, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, which which sectors black people are in. So I've been doing a lot of research, you know, to have guests on my podcast, because I think these are the stories that need to be told. And so I wanted to ask you, like, are, is Pure Oasis, are they an anomaly? Or do you know of any other African-American-owned dispensaries? Um, that's my first question. And then my second question is, do you think that it's, it's hard to break into if you don't have political ties or connections? So actually, I'm going to go to your second question first, because that'll lead to the answer to the first one. So I think a big misnomer is that it doesn't cost money to get into the weed industry. I would think of it similar to like having a liquor license um, in a competitive market. You know, in some places, liquor license might not be worth much. In certain places, a liquor license might be worth a million dollars if there's a lot of control on it. So I know, actually, I can speak to of a company right here in New Jersey, just to apply to get a license to cultivate uh, cannabis, they raise $7 million just to apply just to try to get a license. So it's not one of those things where, you know, you could just jump out there and do and have no, um, no income or, you know, some kind of capital behind you. Now that's in New Jersey. There's other States like Arizona and Michigan who have programs where you can home grow to a certain level to get going. So, so it depends on the state. That's the first part. The second part is, a lot of states have what's called um, social equity programs, um, which is how Pure Oasis got their license. So Florida, California, Illinois, Massachusetts, New York, um, Michigan have social equity programs, which is built to help minorities get into the cannabis space or into other spaces as well um, and get their opportunity to get a license with maybe some of less regulations that the state generally has put forward. Um, So examples of that are like, Pure Oasis, um, which is owned by Kevin Hart, not the comedian, um, and Kobe Evans in Boston, uh, Blunts and Moore in Oakland. I know those are the two I know just offhand that got their licenses to do a dispensary um, through a social equity program. But the, the main thing is people have to understand is there's a difference between having a cannabis license um, and then having a store. So there's a difference between owning a brand or being a cultivator and manufacturer, or being in the retail space. Some companies do it all. Obviously, the big brands do. Um, But a lot of people that you think of only have just either a brand or a licensing deal with someone. Um, And very few, well, a lot fewer than you see, have actual cultivation um, deals. So examples of that are like even some of your famous brands, like uh, 
Gas by Two Chains, uh, Khalifa Kush, um, Saucy by Jim Jones, um, even the Tyson Ranch by Mike Tyson. You you have to look into are they just a brand and they put their name on something, whether they believe in it or not, or are they actual cultivator? Um, and, and that's the difference. I know working at a, a major company, I've I've seen Jim Jones walk into one of our, our facilities to want to work with us to uh, make his products. Um, so he has great products. It's a great brand. Um, obviously, it's owned by an African-American, so that's great. But that doesn't mean that he's growing and making that product. Um, and that's the difference of having a brand and actually having a cultivation or manufacturing license. And then similar to like Pure Oasis and Once and More and plenty of other dispensaries, a lot of those people only have a retail license. So there's a lot of different ways to get into the industry. Um, you don't necessarily have to grow and make your own product. You could just sell other people's product just like any other retail store. Um, or you could just grow really great product and then sell it wholesale um, to these other brands that want that, you know, are fighting for the best flower. Oh, my goodness. You just gave me so many gems. I feel like I got to slow down and like catch up. <laughs> so, um which is so interesting is because one, I did not, I mean, I do know that some people just, you know, they just slap their, their licensing, right? They just license it. It's like licensing mm -hmm. a grant. But the biggest thing you said was the idea that there are all these um, social, I guess, social justice organizations that help African-American people break into the marijuana industry or the mm -hmm. cannabis industry. And then the, the biggest thing I, I learned is that a lot of these uh, people who own it are like joint, they're like doing joint ventures, I guess, right? So you just get a team of capital investors to get together and just, and, and help you grow. And I think it's, it's such a big industry. I don't even think it's great the surface of what it's going to become yet. Um, yeah. And I think that those who are getting in at the ground level are onto something huge. Um, and so, I didn't know it was that easy to get in, particularly in, in states which, where you mentioned, like Arizona, I guess, where you can be a home grower. Um, I think I've yeah, read so online. They, they have a, a kind of uh, a separate license for home growers to to keep uh, to build new strains and to mm. keep mom plants, as they're called, of different strains. And then you donate, quote unquote. Uh, there's some loopholes with that. You donate those strains to the bigger companies or the different growers. Mm. Um, but that gives you the ability to have your own farm, if you will, of, of grows on your own property. Michigan, when they went recreational a year or two ago, they actually made it where people can grow a certain number of plants at their own home without it becoming illegal. Um, so so every state is different. That That's the main part is, you know, that's why it's going to be very complicated when the federal government tries to get involved. You have 11 states completely recreational along with Washington, D.C. You have eight states where it's fully illegal, period. And then you have 39 states that it's either medicinal or it's decriminalized or it's both. You know what's so funny to me is, the, you know, the government is literally stationed in Washington, D.C., it is completely yep. recreationally legal there, yet in places like um, New Jersey, which is where, where I am and where you are, um, it is to some extent, but more so on the medicinal basis. It's, it's very difficult to get. You have to apply for a license. You have to be treated by a physician for a certain period of time before they will even allow you to get a prescription. The, yep. the physician has to take on all of this additional liability if they write you a prescription. And I know for, you know, I deal with a lot of physicians. And when I ask them, hey, are you interested in being in the, in the cannabis industry? A lot of them say to me, no, I don't want to be on that list. Right. Where they're they're coming in and they're scrutinizing my books. They're looking at me extra, you know, very closely because they're wondering, am I writing prescriptions for people who don't really deserve to have it? And am I getting some type of kickback? Am I doing this under the table? And a lot of them are afraid of, of that stigmatization. And so I think, you know, you have the physicians who are afraid and then you also have, you know, people who are using it, you know, even if you are using it for medicinal purposes, who are saying, okay, well, in Washington, D.C., it's it's completely recreationally legal, but here I am in Jersey, I have the same health issues as someone in Washington, D.C., but I'm having all of this trouble. And so then they may decide to go over to cross state lines to get what they need from a recreational standpoint, only to bring that back to New Jersey and potentially face criminal, criminal action, right? Because it's illegal. 
So my question to you is, if it becomes legal, or first, do you see the potential for it to become legalized in New Jersey? And then two, was to become legalized in New Jersey or other states who currently have it um, illegal, do you think it will result in overturned convictions? So there's a lot there, right? So I think the biggest difference is understanding what decriminalized actually means um, Mm. because it's actually a gray area. So if something's completely decriminalized, right, can you still get pulled over and catch a fine for it? Yes. (laughs) So a lot of people don't understand what decriminalized is. They think, oh, well, it's decriminalized, so I can't catch a fine for it. I can't go to jail for it. No, it just means that they've lowered the criminal action towards it. Mm -hmm. So like here in New Jersey, um, it's not fully decriminalized. You can go to jail for having cannabis. In some other states, even like New York, where it is decriminalized, it's decriminalized to a point. There's a certain amount they can catch you with it on you with it not being a criminal action. It just results in a fine. And a fine could be $50, $100, you know, whatever it is in that municipality or that state. But a lot of people think that decriminalized means, well, I could just, you know, have an ounce of weed on me and nobody's going to care. Yeah, I was reading. I don't mean to cut you off, but I was reading about um, uh, de Blasio. Um, mm-hmm. And he was basically saying that he was so against the uh, legalization of marijuana in New York because his family had suffered from alcoholism and from, uh, I guess, uh, some some sort of drug addiction. And he was afraid that by legalizing it, he would open up Pandora's box for so many New Yorkers. And I think it was a big contention between him and Cuomo because they, they both had like polar opposite stances on it. And so I know New York has made some strides to your point of what she was just saying, but I just I just think that it's interesting how politicians employ their personal beliefs and values on issues that have the potential to impact millions and millions and millions of people. And so you have to think about the whole picture. Well, let me cut you off there real quick, because that that's my next point is there's two things there that goes back to that demonization of cannabis. So you're saying de Blasio had alcoholism and and addiction in his family, and that's why he was worried about it. But as I've already told you, cannabis is not an addictive. Exactly. Exactly. So so that's the first part. There's way more deaths in this country dealing with pills, opiates, alcohol than there ever will be with cannabis. It's not addictive. Um, And and that's the first part is we've all been brainwashed to to treat it like a drug. If you ain't smoking weed because you got a good job, then by all means, make your paper, boo-boo. But if you ain't got no job and you're not smoking weed, I don't know what the fuck you are doing with your life. I really don't. I really don't. Don't give me that shit about it's a drug. It ain't no motherfucking drug. I done done the research. It's just a plant. It just grow like that. And if you should happen to set it on fire, there are some effects. But that's not the same as drugs. Drugs, you got to do shit to it chemically. You got to add baking soda, water, stir it up. I don't know the recipe. I'm just saying. It's some shit you got to do to it. Well, why the fuck is it legal? I don't know. Aspirin is perfectly legal. But if you take 13 of them motherfuckers, it'll be your last headache. Especially on the East Coast and running even for, even with congressmen or even at the presidential level that doesn't have some stance or agenda regarding cannabis. It's one of those things you have to now, the same way you have to have a black agenda to run for public office, you need to have a cannabis agenda to run for public office. Phil Murphy, who's the governor of New Jersey, ran on a pro-cannabis agenda when he got uh, elected. And then where uh, is that? <laughs> yeah, and, and it still didn't happen, right? So so that, that's the funny part about it. You know, the legalization of cannabis in Florida so far probably got stalled for two years just based on who won their governor race. Um, so there, there's definitely a politics behind it. And, and there's a there's a way they play with the politics. For even example, as you brought up Massachusetts being recreational, Massachusetts was medicinal for a while, and then they voted it in and made it recreational. And then Boston didn't give a single place a recreational license for a whole year. So all these people in Massachusetts are like, yay, we finally did it. We made it wreck. We can go smoke. And then they couldn't get it anywhere because they didn't give recreational licenses out for a year. That's politics, right? You know, the dispensaries were already running. They already had the product. You already had companies and facilities in the state making the product. It shouldn't take that long to flip the recreational switch once you vote it in. 
but then you get into the politics of who gets it, right? So, you know, if I'm a politician and my buddy already has a license and he already and he's doing he's ready to go, maybe I flip the recreational slip and I immediately give him a license so he can make millions of dollars off of it because he has something that no one else has. He he can sell it recreational when all these other dispensaries only can sell it medicinal. And that's a completely separate license, even for dispensaries. There's plenty of dispensaries that still only have a medicinal license in Massachusetts, even though it's a recreational state. Wow. Um, and, and that all goes into the politics of it. It's so crazy, man. I feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a million, maybe uh, several hundred million dollar industry today, but I think it's a it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise that's just waiting to happen. And California we'll, alone, California alone, I believe did seven billion dollars its first year. Oh yeah. And I'm and I just I feel like it's so much opportunity there for for you know especially with what's going on in the economy right now. Like so many people are depressed. So many people are suicidal. I've read you know, about more, more statistics about how people's mental health are, is doing during this current economic time than, I, than I've ever seen before. And I think that had, had marijuana or cannabis been considered legal recreationally in all 50 states, I think we'd, we'd see a reduction in, you know, the amount, the amount of people who need mental health support. And I, and I know for a fact, like, I don't care if the government's willing to admit it. I know for a fact that there have been studies done that have shown that um, recreational use or, or long, long-term use of cannabis has healing properties on the body, as we talked about before, like irritable bowel syndrome, uh, schizophrenia. Uh, what are some other things I was reading? Alzheimer's disease, Lou Gehrig's mm-hmm. disease, um, multiple sclerosis, ALS. Like there are so many things that can be healed through can through the consumption of cannabis. And I think that the hesitation is is more than just the tax and monetization. It, I think they are afraid that companies like Merck, who aren't who isn't necessarily in the cannabis industry today, might lose some profit share, right? Because if people are turning away from traditional pharmaceuticals and into more something that I think you can grow in your own home, right? Then, yep. then that's money taken out of you know out of their pockets. That impacts the stock market. That impacts the you know the way that as you mentioned before, states collect revenue. How do we tax it? You know how do we control it? How do we regulate it? How do we you know? And then once you start doing all of that, now you have to start thinking about people who've gone to prison. I mean, there are people who've literally gone to prison for five years, seven years, depending on what state you're in, just for having an ounce of marijuana on them. What do you do with those people? You know? And so I think, I think it's a big conversation, man. And, and I'm so happy that you're here today. And before we, we wrap, I want to make sure I ask you, cause we got so deep into the conversation. I forgot to ask, what exactly do you do at the company? Um, <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, the manufacturing and production of cannabis. So, so I started out as a plant manager um, or, you know, in some companies as a GM, so over a facility. And I ran that for about five months um, and then eventually uh, became the senior director of operations overseeing multiple facilities across multiple states. Um, now with, um, so the industry as a whole kind of plateaued about a year ago where it was on this really steep climb for a couple of years and then it plateaued and is working on leveling itself out. Obviously, uh, Corona right now doesn't help it. Um, so right now I'm back to running a facility, but also working on the systems, the processes, the equipment we use across all our facilities um, in the production, packaging, and extraction um, departments. So I, I don't really deal with the cultivation as much. Obviously, I'm there and I see it and I involve very slightly, but I, I let the growers do their thing because that's not my background. Um, but from working in the manufacturing space for so many different industries and companies, um, you know, just being there to launch new products, to find better ways to manufacture stuff, um, working on better return on investments um, and efficiencies in our manufacturing, packaging and extraction, uh, working on better production planning for our retail departments to make sure that, you know, the whole group um, and the whole industry as a whole is working together. Um, just one thing, I, 
I want to tell other people that there there are other ways to get in the cannabis industry without necessarily fully diving in and needing large amounts of money. There's a lot of third-party companies and third-party licenses that you can get in any state to work with the uh, industry. Like, like you spoke about earlier, uh, physicians. If you're a physician, you can get a license to, uh, to prescribe it in a medicinal state. If you have a security company, if you go to your state's website and find out how to get a license to work with inside a facility, you can have a security company. Because the reality is these cannabis companies don't want to do a lot of the work that goes to running a facility that has nothing to do with cannabis. So examples of that are your janitorial staff, mm-hmm. um, your distribution um, from facility to the stores, and your security. All you have to do is have a, li- a state license, and these are very easy to get, to just say that you're qualified to work in a facility. There's basically a background check done by your local municipality or the state that just says, I'm allowed to be inside a, a cannabis facility without needing oversight. Um, so in a lot of states, even in the company I work for, the security on staff, whether at retail or at the facility, are third-party companies. There are security companies that have licenses to be on um, cannabis areas. Same thing with um, temp agencies. There's a lot of temp agencies that have switched over to hiring people really just for the cannabis industry. Um, in one of the facilities I've seen, you know, that's what they would do when they have a large harvest. They would bring in 10 to 20 temps to help harvest the plants, to trim the plants. And then the temps will go away. And then a couple weeks later, when they have another harvest, they bring the temps back in. There's a temp agency you're working with. Um, companies that do like headhunters, talent acquisition. There's a lot of uh, talent acquisition companies that are fully geared now towards cannabis. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of different ways you can be involved in the industry without going to get the, you know, getting a large sum of money or getting these licenses to actually grow or manufacture it. It sounds like you just manifested an entire side hustle right here on With That Set Podcast. Listen, in New Jersey, Jersey, where it's illegal to basically to carry a gun on, you can own one, but you can't carry a gun. If I was a a cop or a probation officer or a parole officer or something like that, where I was legally able to carry a gun, I would definitely be going out there to make it my own security company with other people that can carry a gun because armed security is, isn't really a reality in New Jersey because it's so hard to get a, a carrying license. Mm-hmm. But if you already have a carrying license, I would be getting a license to work inside a, a marijuana facility to do security, at least at, at the point of your uh, retirement or, or what have you. Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you, you're so knowledgeable with, you know, as it relates to the industry. And I think that I don't want to, I don't want to skate past you describing what it is that you do for the company, because I want to make sure that anybody who's listening, you know, understands that, you know, you're essentially your role in any organization is to manage the company's bottom line and improve their profit margins. That's Absolutely. a huge job. Um, and so, and it's, and it's a rarity. For, you know, I know when we talk about the way we see African-American men and women, especially in diversity and inclusion spaces, you usually see them in sort of your chief marketing officer role or the head of diversity or or some other role that's leadership nonetheless. But it's usually some way tied to either marketing or diversity. So to have African-American man who is a millennial, who is literally in charge of helping a company manage their bottom line. That's huge. That's a huge accomplishment. And so I want to make sure that you toot your own horn a little bit because you kind of just glazed over it, you know. And so I want to, you know, what do you attribute to your your ability to be successful? Like, what is it that drives you and, and gives you that motivation to chase your dreams and passions? Uh, I think the biggest thing that has driven me probably for the past, I don't know, almost 10 years plus was uh, in the financial crisis in like 2008. Um, I was an engineer for L'Oreal and literally I was like, I'm going to retire here. I'm going to work here for the next 40 years. And I got laid off, got let go. And, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I had a conversation with my grandmother and she was like, well, this is great. Now you can go do whatever you want. And now you know your worth. Um, and and, uh, oddly enough, they uh, let me go and then eventually had to replace me with two people. So that told me my worth. And, And that was a big thing because, I did probably about five years of jumping around from company to company, but 
understanding what value I brought to a company and, and what my worth was, knowing what I was willing to deal with, not deal with what I was willing to work for financially. Um, and, and that has served me well. It's, it's allowed me to take some risks that maybe others wouldn't take. It's allowed me to make large jumps of money um, financially from company to company or just in different roles. It also fueled me to not be scared to say, I'll take that opportunity. You know, sometimes when your boss walks up and says, hey, we need somebody to do this. And I just instinctively, I just raise my hand. I'll do it. Mm. Um, and, and it served me well. But you got to be willing to do the work. That's the difference. I know that's right. You got to be willing to do the work because, you know, every everybody wants, no one's giving out handouts. Like you got to be able to grind, you know, grit and grind, pull it in. How do you how do you balance it all, right? You're you're traveling. I know we you mentioned earlier in the conversation you travel. I, I know you're probably not traveling as much given the current crisis, but how do you find balance between being, um, you know, an ambitious father, a husband, and and a professional? How do you balance all of that? Um, I, I think it's having a schedule. Um, so, like when I first started traveling for the company, I used to leave on Sunday nights. So that I could be there Monday morning, bright and early, ready to go. Um, and I did that for a couple months, and then I quickly realized, no, Sunday nights are for my family. So now I, you know, I started traveling first thing Monday morning. Uh, and granted, the company worked with me and understood that that you know, hey, I'm going to travel on your time, not my time, because my time is for my my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then same thing coming back from the West Coast. A lot of people don't like to travel on red eyes, and I understand it because you're traveling in the middle of the night, you're sleepy. You know, the plane is dark, uh, but that was a sacrifice I made. Instead of traveling back home on Friday mornings, I started traveling on red eyes back on Thursday nights so I could be home Friday morning. Um, and that was just to, you know, every little couple of hours you could squeak out or change about your schedule to be home with your family. That's what's important. Uh, so that's when I started doing things like that. Um, you know, basically not having my phone, turning my phone off or at least turning off access to work when I am home on the weekends. Um, and then now in the Corona world, working from home, just having very clear times that you start work and that you stop work and that you give this time is for my kids. At one point, I believe I had a couple hours every night where my calendar was completely blocked out where you couldn't put a schedule on me. Um, and that was like, this is my time to have dinner and to be with my family. Uh, and that's hard to do when you work for a company that operates across the U.S. So I'm here on the East Coast waking up at East Coast time. But the company as a whole shuts down on West Coast time. So there's a three-hour gap where I theoretically could be working, even though it's past 5 or 6 o'clock here on the East mm-hmm. Coast. Um, and that's why I had to do things like putting that block on my schedule to say, no, I'm actually going to shut down at this time. You know, if once my kids are asleep, if I want to get up and, you know, and work into the midnight oil, that's fine. They're asleep. Um, but when they're awake and want my attention, being there to give them that attention. And then, like I said, making those trips travel sacrifices, leaving on different days, doing the red eyes. Um, even when I'm on the West Coast, I would wake up on East Coast time to speak with my daughter first thing in the morning. Um, and I would have a block cut out during the week um, where to put her to bed, to talk to her before she went to sleep. Um, just because I want to be one of the first things and the last things my daughter hears, sees, or thinks about before she goes about her day or goes to sleep. Oh, thank you for that. I'm sure that the advice you just gave is going to help so many fathers um, who may found who may have found themselves struggling with some of the the things that you just spoke about. And before we wrap, I want to ask you, um, we covered a lot. Is there anything else that you want to add? And then if you could go back and give yourself some advice, so if you can go back and talk to 10 year old Corey, what advice would you give him that you think would benefit you now? Uh. The main thing I want to tell people um, is just a way to help yourself. There's a wonderful company called American Cannabinoid Clinic. Um, It's run by three black women doctors. Um, I believe they operate in like 19 states and they use a system called ECS, endocannabinoid system. Um, And what they do is you set up an appointment with them and they're doctors and they go through series of questions and different things to find out how cannabis can be integrated into your daily life. It's definitely a health and wellness company, but it's ran by three um, black women doctors. um, And it's a way for people that have different ailments, whether it's anxiety or anything, 
to talk with actual physicians and understand how to integrate cannabis into their daily life. I think that's really important um, so that people aren't just buying it on the black market or just testing it themselves and not really knowing what they're doing. Um, and obviously I want to support black business. So there's the first one, the American cannabinoid clinic. Uh, the advice I would give to 10 year old me. Hmm. I'd probably just say the same thing my grandmother told me was just know your worth. Um, um, I, I guess learned that, you know, in college or, uh, after college working with L'Oreal. Um, but those are the conversations I had with her as I became a man, um, even while I was pledging my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Um, you know, she just always, you know, I didn't raise a quitter. You know your worth, you know your goals. Now just go get it done. Um, and, and she kind of instilled this hard work mentality in me. And I think the earlier a kid, especially a black man um, in this country, knows that the better off they're going to be because um, that helped shape a lot of decisions I made as I grew up of, you know, getting in the car to go with my friends to that club that night or going to do this or going to do that, you know, understanding, you know, I, I got a bigger purpose. I got a, a bigger thing that I'm going after and it definitely helped in those situations. All right. And with that said, we will end the conversation. I want to thank you so much, Corey, for your time, your honesty, your transparency today. I know that this conversation is going to help so many people who may be curious about cannabis, maybe thinking about joining the industry, or just might want to know how they can find a group of cannabis doctors who are African-American women who are out here doing it. And so thank you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Thank you for having me.